0: This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. Today, we're going to talk about several uh, topics, beginning with the story of an opera singer. I'd mentioned the other two, but I'm I'm never positive, uh, Dave Green, how long our conversations will last about any given topic. So, I don't want to promote something that won't happen. you understand that? <laughs> I understand. That's a bad, bad thing to do. Yeah,
1: you're for, by that time, you've forgotten yourself.
0: But uh, today's uh, podcast is, is uh, drawn from some of my uh, columns in the Daily Gazette uh, newspaper out of uh, Schenectady. And uh, the first one, uh, the headline, Amsterdam natives operatic career cut short by car accident. Uh, here's the story of a man that a lot of people have heard of, you know, especially if they're interested in opera. But uh, probably more people would have heard of this man if he hadn't died at age 39 in an automobile accident. His name was Albert Sosian. He was born in Amsterdam, but he performed as Albert de Costa uh, instead of Albert Sosian. Da Costa was his mother's maiden name. And Albert died at age 39 in an automobile accident while driving to sing in a production of Carmen, big uh, opera, at the Jutland Opera in Denmark. And why he was in Europe doing that is also part of the story. But back to Albert Soshin's roots, if you will. Albert's father was Joseph Soschen, member of a prominent Amsterdam Jewish family who operated... Socian's Men's Clothing Store in uh, the city of Amsterdam. It was first on Guy Park Avenue, then moved to Market Street. Albert's mother was Violet de Costa. She was a member of St. Anne's Episcopal Church, where their son was a boy soprano in the youth choir. That's kind of how he got his start in singing. When his voice changed, and by the way, Dave, do you remember when your voice changed? I mean, when you were... could, could you have sung soprano when you were young you
1: you you don't remember you only remember your mother telling you so
0: It <laughs> could be yeah, I really don't remember, but uh Albert you know had been singing, so he remembered, and when his voice changed, it turned out he had a really nice what they thought was a deep voice, and I said that's for a reason what they thought was a deep voice, so he sang baritone. Uh, the the singing range for for men I believe uh, is you know from the hi, high the the guys that can hit the high notes are the tenors uh, and then under that are the baritones and then Dave the basses you know <laughs> people that are yes way down there the announcer guys the, the announcer guys some of those folks so uh, when Albert's voice changed he sang baritone and he was in great demand in in uh, Amsterdam a gentleman who uh, reads my column, uh, Ken uh, Garrick, and now I'm blanking on where he's from. He's not even from around uh, here right now. He's relocated some other place in America. He suggested this story about uh, Albert Sosian de Costa because he recalls hearing Albert sing as a soloist at the then Second Presbyterian Church in Amsterdam and that he had a tremendous voice. So locally, Albert performed at weddings, funerals, High School productions and concerts of the Mohawk Mills Chorus, which is now called the Mohawk Valley Chorus, toward the end of World War two Albert uh, graduated from high school and joined the u s navy and there obviously there was a war on and i- be, I don't know if this was his only um navy detail, but he was a singer in the Navy he continued to to sing in a, in a chorus. That, the-
1: that's the job they all aspire to. <laughs> I would
0: think. I would think. You
1: either get to sit with the guns or sing. <laughs> that's right. There's and so, not much
0: of a choice there. Yeah, so he's, he sang, and he met his future wife. Uh, her name, H. Jean Rower. Her name was Jean Rower. She was from Toledo, Ohio. She was a singer also, and also a, a pianist, and they met at a Navy concert in Corpus Christi, Texas, where they were both performing, and I don't, you know, know a great deal about Albert's, you know, personal life, um, except what's in the written record. That this, this mainly, uh, these, st- the story about him mainly comes from newspaper clippings, a- and he, there were quite a few because you know he was so well known at some point, and people would write about him uh, quite a lot. But Albert and Jean married at the Corpus Christi Naval Base Chapel in July 1945. So, I mean, I don't know if they ever even had gone to their homes on leave. Of course, they're both in the service, so maybe they, they couldn't. I mean, the war was still on in July of 1945. But for whatever reason, and I refuse to speculate anymore, they got married in July of 1945. But then they did go on to have six children, Dave. Count them, six it seems Tell to
1: me you. that's what Navy people do. About really? Is that right? I, I have no idea.
0: <laughs> well, anyway, they, they had a whole bunch of kids. The war ended, and after the war, Albert studied for three years at the Juilliard Music School, you know, top school in New York City, still singing baritone. And they moved to New York City. I think they the uh, Socian DaCostas lived uh, in a, a suburb of, of New York City, but he was basically going to school in New York City. And then he got what he hoped would be his big break in 1952. And I just thought this was such an interesting way to do it. It almost sounds more modern than I thought they were back in those days. You know, we have the shows in like The Voice now and uh, America's Got Talent and I'm blanking on the on the big one.
1: And why do we assume that during the 40s, everybody lived in the backwoods, Bob? <laughs> That's true. Yeah.
0: It's, it's, it's true. Well, anyway, the Metropolitan Opera in 1952 was on the lookout for new singers. So they had live auditions on ABC network television. Mm. You, know, you could audition before millions of people. So Albert Soshan DaCosta auditioned. And unfortunately, the judges were not impressed. Hmm. And in fact, the judges told him. Plot thickens. (laughs) It does. They told him, you know, Albert, you shouldn't be singing baritone. You should go, you should kick it up a notch. You should sing as a tenor. I mean, here's a man who, you know, he's studied in... You know, in Amsterdam, you know, voice teacher, I'm sure, went to Juilliard. And all along the way, people are saying, yep, this guy's a baritone. But now these judges from the Metropolitan Opera say, uh-uh, you're a tenor. So it's like he had a retool. I really don't know what's involved in this, but um, it's, it sounds difficult. He he got another vocal coach, and he set to, wor- set to work training as a tenor. A year later... I, I think the guy who was training him, who was an impresario, uh, you know, put together musical programs. Whatever they are. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> the big producer. His name was Charles Wagner. And there's a quote in some of the stories about Albert uh, sochin Costa saying that it was one of the finest tenor voices he had discovered.
1: Maybe all it takes, Bob, is standing up straight.
0: It could be. So now he's singing tenor. 1954 the Metropolitan Opera held another live television audition. And once again, Albert uh, took part. This time, he was one of the winners. He was signed to a contract with the Metropolitan Opera for the 1955-56 season. An imposing man, He, he was kind of a big guy. Albert's first role at the Metropolitan Opera was as the sailor in Tristan und Isolde, which is a German opera. know it well. Yes, indeed. Well, I, don't, I, I really don't either. But, uh, you know, it's a big role, good role. And at the end of 1955, he didn't uh, neglect his Amsterdam roots. He returned to Amsterdam, now as kind of the big-time opera singer, to uh, sing and raise money for the Rotary Club's student loan program, and he was interviewed by Hugh Donlin of the Recorder newspaper, uh, who uh, was also an historian of things in Amsterdam, and Hugh Donlin wrote of Albert uh Sochen de Costa, quote, a remarkable voice notwithstanding the nicest thing about him is his friendly way.
1: Well that'll always get you ahead, but uh,
0: it would, but you know you have this in um, what um an impression or the reputation of opera singers is that they are difficult. <laughs> you know, they're, they're divas. So <laughs> it's of course,
1: bu- built into the job. Yeah,
0: um, Perhaps maybe we associate it. Uh, I'm going to be. Don't mean to make a sexist comment. More with the female singers, but I imagine. You know, I think the male singers as well. But apparently, that was not the case, or at least that's the testimony of Hugh Donlan of the recorder. And get this. Here's another twister. Here's a man. Uh, you know, grows up singing, loves to sing sings as a baritone almost makes it into the Metropolitan Opera except they say, you know, you're not really a baritone even though he's been trained in that
1: That's a real curiosity
0: It is. You've got to do tenor, so he does tenor so now he's finally there at the Metropolitan Opera but by 1962 he concluded, remember he's also a man, he and his wife Jean have six kids he's not getting enough work here in America so his idea was he's going to move the family to Europe, where, as he said in, in an interview, most cities with more than seventy five thousand people have opera houses, and I think that's that's
1: true yeah, that makes sense, yeah,
0: because they they're more into uh, opera over in uh, over in Europe, or certainly were at that time. They lived in Switzerland for a while, where he sang in Zurich, then they moved to Horem, Germany a suburb of Cologne. That wasn't where you were in Germany with the army. Uh,
1: no, I'm really curious. I mean, he, he was making enough money in all these locations to support a family of seven or eight?
0: Yeah, apparently. You no, know, it was a family of six. I, I believe one of their uh, children died at some point mm-hmm. along the way, but uh, it was a big family. But yeah, he was. Uh, I, I, I assume, although his relatives in Amsterdam you know, had some money, maybe there were helping him out. Maybe his uh, wife's people, as they say, were helping her out. But he was, uh, you know, first they were in Zurich, Switzerland, and then he lived near Cologne and sang with the Cologne Opera Company. He made his last trip to America in 1966 when he visited his father, who was still in Amsterdam, and his mother, who was at a hospital in Terrytown, New York, and I'm not sure why she was down there. Maybe because it was a specialized hospital. She was ill, and I'm not exactly—I'm sh- not sure at all—have knowledge of what was her illness. But what was reported in the press was that when Albert went back to Europe, his mother went with him, and was convalescing with her son's family when Albert died the next year. Albert died in. That accident in 1967. A news coverage of the accident said a car driven by Albert skidded on a sharp curve, slippery from rain, leaving the highway, crashing through trees and overturning. Albert apparently died instantly. The man with him, a Dutch singer, Jan Gerksson, was just slightly injured. So Albert uh, Soschen de Costa uh, died In 1967, his mother, her name was Violet, died the next year in Briarcliff Manor, New York, where Albert's widow, Jean, and her family appear to have moved. And again, I'm not sure why. But uh, Jean Sosian, you know, had a lot of living to do still. And I don't believe she ever remarried. But she soon relocated to Jamaica, Vermont, and worked at a school district in Townsend vermont albert's father uh, joseph sosian died in 1969 while visiting his daughter-in-law in in vermont and albert's uh, widow Jean sosian a pianist and vocalist in her own right died in 2007 at age 87 she was survived by five of their children 15 grandchildren and nine great grandchildren and if folks uh want to hear a little bit of Albert Socean de Costa. I was going to put some into the podcast, but you know how we are, Dave, about using, you know, copyrighted material. He didn't record a, a, an awful lot, but he did record some. And if you uh, Google him or, or go on YouTube and look for Albert Soshin de Costa, one thing that stands out is a recording of of him as a tenor and the person who posted it notes that he's hitting very high notes. He's, you know, it's almost uncanny, maybe almost a little scary (laughs) uh, that he was able to sing in sort of that tenor voice, but uh, to, to hit these very high notes.
1: Well, you know, both of us have been in the so-called voice business for years. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a case of when he was first, you know, on the market, so to speak. People, you know, put him into a slot.
0: Yep, yep.
1: I bet that could the, be way the way they case. do in radio. You That's know, right. You sound like a morning person. Yeah. And yeah. nobody decided to think, as they say, outside the box. <laughs> no, they were. They were still.
0: Uh, yeah, there was more to Albert uh, Soshin de Costa than that. Just that ability to hit those high notes. exactly, But anyway, you can hear uh, that uh, tune uh, that he sings. I think a couple of others that uh, are have been posted by uh, opera aficionados uh, over the years. Would it
1: have been bigger and bigger and better things for him had he survived?
0: Well, I think so. Or I think that was conceivable. And I again probably should have looked this up, but let's take Luciano Pavarotti. I mean, he I know he died some years ago, but he was no spring chicken, and he kept singing right up to the end. You know what I mean? I think Mm -hmm. he was at least in his 50s or maybe into his 60s uh, singing uh, singing opera. I think that's the one thing that kind of stays with you for a long time, or or it can— is, you know, a good, solid voice.
1: Well, there, the, you know, I would think the job market would always be there if you were halfway decent, because I'm sure there's always a need for that. You know, you don't go out in the street and just grab someone.
0: No, you can't. You know,
1: and we need somebody to fill in here tonight.
0: Well, it's funny. I, I don't have it right in front of me. Let me just try to remember enough of it to tell you a uh, bit of the story that one thing that uh, DeCosta, so Albert Sojan DaCosta was well-known for, they had some big tenor was sick and th- all the potential fill-ins including da costa were not feeling so hot so what they did was three of them filled in for one guy in a three act opera you know they split it up like that uh-huh. you know so like da costa maybe did the first act somebody else did the second act and somebody did the third act it's almost like reminds me of people when they write stories about baseball you know these pe- the opera is so much involved with detail and and things like that. But he's in the record books for that. He was he, I think maybe it was the only time that was done.
1: I, I just try to understand it, Bob.
0: <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, this is the Historians Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. It could be we're only going to get into uh, two stories, Dave. And we'll get into number two right after I say a few words about our GoFundMe campaign, which is how we keep this production rolling along with contributions to our GoFundMe drive, you can go online to GoFundMe.com forward slash historians2017. GoFundMe.com forward slash historians2017. You'll learn more about the drive and also you're able to donate right there. If you'd rather donate by mail, send a check made out to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to... 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. That's 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Continuing on the Historian's Podcast, this next tale, also it's been a column in my Daily Gazette series, and this is about a homeless man who sketched the homes of others. Fritz Vogt, which is spelled V-O-G-T, Fritz Vogt, slept in barns and relieved the pain of rheumatism with alcohol. He spoke broken English and died at a poorhouse. Yet he left a collection of 200 drawings that have been prized by art collectors and exhibited at museums. New York Times reviewer Ken Johnson uh, wrote some years ago, no one knows what Fritz Vogt did during the first 48 years of his life where he lived in Germany. He lived in Germany for 48 years, then relocated to America in 1890. He'd been born in 1841. He spent his last 10 years... Um, came to America in 1890, and I believe he died in 1900. He spent his last 10 years as a traveling artist, recording what the uh, New York Times reviewer Ken Johnson called lucid descriptions of the homes of clients, primarily farmers in Schaharie, Montgomery, Otsego, Fulton, and Herkimer counties. You figure in eight, the 1890s, we do have photography, but... People, and to this day, people still like paintings or drawings. And that's uh, what Fritz Vogt was able to do. He did 40 drawings of farms, churches, and other buildings in the town of Sharon, for example, you know, where Sharon Springs is located. And he did 25 uh, such drawings in Harry. He died in the poorhouse of the town of Palatine in 1900. The ledger from the Commissioner of the Poor in Palatine for that year, stored at the old courthouse in Fonda, has a notation for a request for remuneration for votes, burial expenses. So he came here, did the uh, sketches. Uh, He worked in pencil primarily, uh, sometimes just... You know, one color, you know, gray or black, and sometimes in several kinds of colored pencils. But he, he died poor, and that would have been the end of the end of the story, except that he left these sketches, which have become collectible. The late W. Parker Hayes, who was a project director for the Smithsonian Institution's traveling exhibition service, produced a catalog book for a showing of Vogt's work, which was called Drawn Home, Fritz Vogt's Rural America. The catalog was published by the Fenimore Art Museum in Cooperstown. The Arkell Museum in Harry has displayed Fritz Vogt's work, as has the American Folk Art Museum in New York City. At first, Fritz Vogt drew realistically with graphite pencils, then he switched to colored pencils, and his work became more complex with multiple perspectives. You might say it's I don't know if you're familiar with this, David. Not quite, but it's maybe something like some of the things that Grandma Moses did. Have you ever heard of her? Uh, certainly. Yeah.
1: Um, drawings do require uh, more of your imagination.
0: Yes, and I think that was true. It wasn't, you know, they, they weren't nece- you know really realistic drawings, but. Uh, they they conveyed, uh, you know, the message or what vote was trying to convey. The uh, curator, Mr. Hayes, said somebody could have happened to buy him a set of colored pencils or somebody said, I want this in color. And all of a sudden his constituency decided, hey, I want my work in color. Why did the farmers want pictures of their homes? Hayes says New York agriculture in the 1890s was facing competition from the Midwest. There was nostalgia for what was seen then as the dwindling number of gentlemen farmers. Vogt's drawings also mirror another late 19th century social trend, publication of county atlases depicting the homes of wealthy people. So the the farmers who uh, could could afford to pay Fritz Vogt either in kind or in money uh, were you know, substantial members of the community, if you will.
1: I, I My thought was because on an economic level, the the farmers wanted to get that drawing into, of all things, here's my mind, the Sears catalog <laughs> well, or the be. Montgomery Ward catalog.
0: <laughs> that could be. Um, or, or the local county atlas. Oh, yeah, okay. uh, the curator from the Smithsonian, Mr. Hayes, was able to, to chronicle aspects of Fritz Vogt's life from oral histories, which were recorded on tape in the 1960s, interviews with elderly people who had known Vogt when they were children. Hayes created a database of Vogt's work to fill in biographical details in that the artist dated and described each drawing. Like he would say, you know, June 15th, 1892, Dave Green's house, and so you, you knew what it was and where, or, and where it was. You yeah,
1: but well now we've got Google, Bob. Well,
0: that's true, we do. But back then, that was a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Hayes said the oral histories note that Fritz Vogt picked hops used in making beer. He, uh, Hayes writes, quote, in August of every year from 1891 until he died, he didn't do any drawings. August is the beginning of the hops picking season. A few of the drawings indicate that Vogt was paid a couple of dollars for a specific piece, which, of course, was, you know, a dollar was really a dollar back then. Vogt was more often paid in kind with a place to stay with meals or with alcohol. Everybody seems to agree that he was a serious drinker. Fritz Vogt fit in with the region's existing German-American population, Hayes, uh, said he relied on an ethnic network to get the basic things in life and to find patrons. Vote had a good rapport with children and may have earned money by teaching German. He also, I think, had um, um, able to play an instrument, and that also appealed to the children. Vote was described as a short, smallish man with a quick step yet slightly rotund. He wore five or six second-hand shirts layered over each other, the underlying shirts visible through holes in the outer layers. He slept in the shelter of barns between two buffalo hides on a pile of hay. When Vote entered a home to complete his drawings, he wore a pair of slippers or crude shoes fashioned from carpet remnants as you figure that vote had to go into the house But maybe wasn't the most appealing character to let into your house from the farmers Perspective or the members of the family. So he apparently was very careful about that and Fritz Hayes kind of sums I'm sorry. not Fritz Hayes it was Parker Hayes is the curator and Fritz vote is the artist and Mister Hayes wrote, quote, "We are left with the great irony of a homeless man, who expressed an intimate knowledge of the idea of home."
1: Have any of these been sold for the uh, Van Gogh big bucks, Bob?
0: I don't think so. No, okay. but you know, I'm actually
1: glad to hear that. Yeah, the poor yeah.
0: No, they're um, they're I don't know what they're worth. But you can go again if our listeners want to go online you can and find uh Fritz Vogt work online i'm quite sure <clears throat> and uh, i'm really ch- challenged to remember you know what they would what they would cost or what they would um you know you'd have to pay to get them but not a lot but i mean it's just kind of remarkable that this man who was very poor and died uh in, at the poorhouse uh, in the town of Palatine in Montgomery County uh, that people are still collecting his works.
1: Uh, should we be thinking about these podcasts the same way, Bob? After we're all done and gone, I say, well, I'll give you big money for one of those Cudmore podcasts. That's true. I never <laughs> I never thought of that. <laughs> he traveled, he traveled here and there. Here and there. And he he was in this. broadcasting. He did that yeah. and the other thing. Nobody knows what became of him and he died in the yeah, poorhouse.
0: And, and since we've been doing this, the podcast has become such an, what, an icon. I'm always hearing about it on the Regular media, you know the, and the so and so is going to be the MC. Does the podcast? Two shoes are better than one. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what, what is? is there, everybody. Uh, wait, wait.
1: I like the I like the title.
0: That's a good one. We have to keep that, Dave. <laughs> Two well, shoes. How, how do we get How do we get
1: twenty nine minutes out of that? subject? <laughs> we could. Two
0: shoes are better than uh, than right. one. So you can uh, find my uh, history columns uh, in the, uh, from the Daily Gazette. We archive them at Frank Yunker's website, MohawkValleyWeb.com. Along with Dave Green, this is Bob Cudmore, and you have been listening to The Historian's Podcast.